This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis and welcome to Kick-Ass News. The 2016 presidential election was the biggest upset since Truman defeated Dewey. And months later, many political analysts are still scratching their heads trying to figure out how Hillary Clinton's seemingly inevitable march to the White House got derailed. Arguably the most qualified person ever to run for president, with an unprecedented war chest, a campaign operation 25 years in the making, and no primary challenge to speak of, Hillary was the candidate to beat. And yet, somehow, a crude, politically inexperienced real estate developer with a questionable record and a penchant for stretching the truth did just that. Now, political writers Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes shed some light on what went so horribly wrong in a gripping new postmortem of Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential run called Shattered, Inside Hillary Clinton's Doomed Campaign. Through deep access to insiders from the top to the bottom of the campaign, Allen and Parnes have reconstructed the key decisions and unseized opportunities, the well-intentioned misfires, and the hidden thorns that turned a winnable contest into a devastating loss. Drawing on the author's deep knowledge of Hillary from their previous book, the acclaimed biography HRC, Shattered offers an object lesson in how Hillary herself made victory an uphill battle, how her difficulty articulating a vision irreparably hobbled her impact with voters, and how the campaign failed to internalize the lessons of populist fury from the hard-fought primary against Bernie Sanders. Jonathan Allen joins me today to talk about the campaign that was supposed to have been a sure thing. Jonathan has covered national politics for Politico, Bloomberg, and Vox, He's the head of community and content for Sidewire and writes a weekly political column for Roll Call. He'll discuss how he and his co-author Amy Parnes were able to get a surprisingly candid play-by-play of the campaign in real time. We'll talk about the various warring factions in the Clinton camp, including Huma Abedin, John Podesta, and campaign manager Robbie Mook, who was sidelined to the point that he had virtually no contact with Clinton herself. We discuss some of the fundamental flaws with Hillary Clinton as a candidate, including her inability to articulate why she was running, her tone-deaf response to outrage over her private email server, and her own admission that she didn't, quote, get what's going on with the country. Plus, we'll discuss how close Joe Biden got to entering the race, how much of a factor Bill Clinton was, and a minute-by-minute account of election night from those who witnessed Hillary's soul-crushing defeat firsthand. Coming up with Jonathan Allen in just a moment. Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes are the authors of a new book called Shattered, Inside Hillary Clinton's Doomed Campaign. And Jonathan Allen joins me via Skype today. Jonathan, thanks for talking with me. It's my pleasure. Um, The way you went about writing this book, you told all of your sources that they would be used on background and the book wouldn't even come out until after the election. Do you think that gave campaign insiders the freedom to speak a little more candidly about what was going on behind the scenes than they otherwise would have been? 
Absolutely. I think that had they believed that the reporting would have come out before the campaign and potentially influenced the outcome, uh, they would not have talked to us uh, either at all or very candidly. And, and similarly, the anonymity allows them uh, to speak freely without the fear of retribution. Jonathan, let me run my theory by you. My impression from the outside looking in was that Hillary Clinton didn't have the fire in her belly this time around. She didn't seem to want it as much as she did in 2008. Does my gut instinct ring true to you based on what you learned? I mean, I think it's difficult to get out of bed and campaign across the country uh, for as long as she did without having, you know, any of that fire in the belly. But I do, you know, as she's said before, she's uh, not a natural politician. She doesn't thrive on the campaigning aspect of uh, the political world. She prefers to be uh, in office and, and dealing with problems of governance and public policy. So, you know, I, I think it was probably hard for her to look forward <coughs> to the campaign in the same way after having been through one before and knowing just how grueling it is. Um, and, you know, there, there, was not, there was not some uh, aching desire that she had uh, to bring a, a specific type of change uh, to the United States. And I think that was... As her source, as our sources told me and Amy uh, for this book, um, you know that was a problem. That uh, it was hard to define for a lot of voters what it was she was offering other than herself. Yeah, you say that one of her biggest problems was that she never managed to give voters a good reason for why she was running for president. Was it that she was so focused on policy that articulating an overarching theme to her campaign wasn't a big priority? Or was it that she thought that the policy would maybe help shape that vision? I think she thought the policy would help shape that vision. She's someone, uh, for better and worse, who firmly believes that it should be about the policy. And she uh, worked very hard on, on setting up a platform very early on in the campaign uh, to, and, and tried to build a message out of that. And I think you know most politicians have a big idea or a couple of big ideas and they, they put everything else into the basket or, or try to take the various policy positions that they're taking and, and make sure that they align with that. For her, she did it sort of in reverse. Um, and, uh, and it made it harder for folks to understand exactly what she was promising. Uh, even one of her senior aides said to us, I would have had a reason for running or I wouldn't have run. Throughout the campaign, there was a lot of media attention given to all the infighting on the Trump campaign. Not so much on the Clinton side, but it turns out in the book that there were a lot of different competing factions. In fact, you use an analogy of a Venn diagram to describe the various warring factions in the campaign. Uh, who were these competing camps? Well, you had, um, you know, on, on one side, uh, you had uh, a group from the State Department that had worked with her there. Uh, you had um, <coughs> a group called the the Mook Mafia, which was campaign manager Robbie Mook and the uh, hand-picked lieutenants that he brought into the uh, into the fold and uh, were loyalists to him. Uh, and then you also had uh, some older Clintonites around. You had a communication shop that was uh, run by Jennifer Palmieri, a former White House communications director. Um, and, and you had Huma Abedin, one of the former State Department and White House aides to Hillary Clinton, who was almost a tribe unto herself. Yeah, and you also say that there was this large network of donors, friends, and advisors who made up kind of an extended kitchen cabinet that had direct access to Hillary and was constantly planting ideas in her head and circumventing the campaign structure. Yeah, I think it was impossible for the campaign to really know who she was in contact with at any given moment. Uh, and a lot of the people on the campaign had to use 
Huma Abedin as a, as a pass-through. She was kind of the gatekeeper to Hillary um, throughout the campaign. And she, she plays that role with some of the outside advisors as well. But a lot of folks have, have the email address and are able to, to get in touch with, with Clinton directly, at least the older set of friends. You have a scene in the book where Susie Tompkins Buell, a friend of hers, berates Robbie Mook, the campaign manager, for uh, strategizing, I guess, to make Hillary seem more real. Something that frustrated a lot of her allies and donors, uh, that the campaign had uh, talked to the New York Times, and the New York Times had done a piece about how they were planning to make her seem more genuine, which uh, Susie Tompkins Buell and others uh, recognized immediately as a good way to make her look inauthentic, <laughs> planning to try to make her look authentic, uh, you know, had the opposite effect. Uh, and there was a lot of people were very upset that the campaign uh, seemed to be getting in her way. And in 2008, a lot was made of Bill Clinton's public gaffes, like calling Barack Obama's campaign a fairy tale. There was a sense that the Hillary campaign tried to keep him on a tight leash this time. But how much of a problem was Bill in 2016? Uh, I don't think he was much of a problem at all for her. I mean, there mm -hmm. were a couple of instances where, you know, he sort of became the news. But most of the time, he was just fighting to try to get uh, to get out to talk to people that weren't uh, persuaded by her yet, that were on the fence or, or against her. And the campaign kept telling him that that was inefficient, that it was better to go talk to people who supported her and try to convince them to turn out rather than trying to make a persuasive case, uh, which ran counter to his instincts in politics. Uh, and, you know, so, some of the people on the campaign uh, believe that that was a real mistake. We were just talking about the campaign structure and this idea that there seemed to be a lot of captains and no general. Um, you know, every campaign needs a David Axelrod or a Karl Rove to sort of steer the ship and craft some kind of a unifying message. My impression was that John Podesta was filling that role. Was that not the case? Uh, he was supposed to be filling that role, um, but it was unclear to a lot of the people on the campaign, uh, these, you know, where uh, Podesta's power ended and Mook's began. And those two clashed. They had very different styles. Uh, Podesta's very uh, direct and, uh, as he describes himself, aggressive. Uh, Mook uh, is, uh, is, you know, much less like that. In fact, Podesta, in front, as we report in the book for the first time, in front of a senior staff leadership, Podesta, uh, called Robbie uh, passive-aggressive. Right. He said, Robbie is passive-aggressive and I'm aggressive. <laughs> right. Um, and I think that was it in a nutshell. I mean, it, those yeah. two clashed stylistically uh, throughout the campaign and, and, and also on, so, on some more substantive matters. Uh, you know, I think Podesta didn't fully trust uh, uh, what Mook was doing because Mook wouldn't let him in on, on all the numbers and uh, particularly Mook was, was running... Uh, sort of above the data operation, the data analytics operation they had. Uh, and and I think Podesta never felt like he had a full window into budgets and the data analytics and things like that. There were more in Robbie's domain. The infighting that went on with the campaign and the disenchantment of the campaign aides never really seemed to make it into the media in real time. But you seem to have had a window on that. You even refer to, I guess, this mantra among the campaign aides that was, we're not allowed to have nice things. Right. They felt that anytime something good happened for her, something equally bad or if not, if not equally bad, worse happened. Um, you know, they, their, their position is that everything was, was happy all the time. I mean, that's what they were saying publicly. But, um, you know, I mean, I think you can have good times on a campaign. And certainly there were moments of triumph for her. She won the Democratic primaries, you know, won the nomination. Uh, there, there were some good times there. And certainly before the actual general election, there were 
some good times. But I think there was a, a sort of sense of an impending darkness around a campaign that was launched uh, after the email scandal first started. So even before she had launched her campaign, they had this huge issue that would dog the campaign for the, the entirety. Yeah, and apparently you say that the campaign wanted her to apologize for the private email server, but Bill Clinton put the kibosh on that, right? Well, the two of them both were dug in. They didn't want to do it. They felt like she hadn't done anything wrong, uh, that, that it would be a mistake uh, to apologize for it. They, she wouldn't do it. She wouldn't do it. In fact, the two of them, we have this scene where they're chewing out their aides for their, for their, their, their staff's inability to come up with an economic message that cut through uh, all of the, the email scandal talk in the media. And, uh, you know, I mean, so, some of those folks were shaking their heads thinking, like, all you got to do is apologize and we'll be able to get on and move move on and get another message out there. And, and ultimately she did, but it, it took her quite a long time. And by that point, her credibility with the voters had been damaged uh, damaged pretty badly. Yeah, and all throughout the campaign, Hillary was sort of bludgeoned with her own inevitability. Critics derided her path to victory as an anointment. Is there a case to be made that she might have actually benefited from a more robust primary with a deeper bench of viable candidates on the left? I think there's a valid argument there. Uh, you know, I mean, it could be that she would have lost with more candidates. I mean, one of her strengths as a politician was to to clear the field. Um, she was able to to put some fear into other potential candidates. She was able to get uh, all the top staff and the Democratic officials, the superdelegates on board pretty early. So all of that helped her win the nomination. But uh, without as much of a, you know, Bernie Sanders ended up being the candidate who gave her a run for her money. But uh, with, you know, with other candidates in there, they might, they might, somebody else might have emerged that was more viable for the nomination. Yeah. And what was the big wake up call for the campaign that Bernie was going to be more of a problem for Hillary than they expected? Um, you know, there were a couple of times, certainly over the summer, they decided to uh, start running some ads earlier than they had anticipated, I guess, in August of 2015 in Iowa uh, that were more uh, biographical in nature about Hillary because they felt like a lot of voters had negative impressions of her and were starting to move toward Bernie. They start running the ads. The, the Bernie thing sort of subsides a little bit. And then, uh, you know, lo and behold, over the over the holidays, he starts making real moves on her in the polling. Uh, and it, it put, sent a shockwave through the campaign uh, over the holidays. Uh, Hillary Clinton was lighting up uh, Robbie Mook's phone, trying to figure out what was going wrong, what they could do to arrest Bernie's ascent. Uh, and, you know, as as you know, the Iowa caucuses tur- uh, ended up turning on a dime. Yeah. And what about Joe Biden? How close did he get to jumping into the race? He got very close to jumping into the race. I think he wanted to run. And uh, there were a couple of factors limiting him. I think there was, you know, part of it was his son had just died. And I think that he, there was a sensitivity to, to putting his family through uh, a presidential campaign. But in addition to that, uh, Hillary Clinton had locked up uh, most of the major donors and staff. And a lot of the elected officials who, who would be important for support in a campaign. And it, it was a hard path for him. And, and I think he determined that it was going to be ugly uh, if he ran against her. In fact, he said to, to one of his advisors at one point, she's playing ugly uh, about some of the things she was doing to try to needle him out of the race. <clears throat> and uh, I think he thought it was going to end up turning on personal issues. Yeah, and I guess he was disappointed to learn that uh, Obama had already pretty much decided that he was going to support her no matter what, that she was his candidate. The president had quietly blessed her. I mean, just by by virtue of the fact that he hadn't been out there endorsing his own vice president uh, was a good indication of where the president stood. Uh, He clearly privately made that indication to people that knew both Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. Uh, You know, one of the 
uh, figures in the book is a guy named Robert Wolf, who's a uh, a big New York financier and was a uh, um, a huge Obama supporter. He goes in to see Joe Biden while Biden's trying to make his determination and and basically says says to Biden, you know, I, I think the president wants wants Clinton. I'm going to be with her. Yeah, and you say that she was pretty disappointed in her options for a running mate. Who among those on her shortlist were under serious consideration? I think everybody that was on the shortlist was under serious consideration. You're talking about, uh, obviously, Tim Kaine, uh, Tom Vilsack, the uh, the Obama Agriculture Secretary and former Iowa governor. Um, you've got uh, Cory Booker, the New, Je- New Jersey senator, uh, Sherrod Brown, the Ohio uh, Democratic senator, and a, and a sort of late run was made by Elizabeth Warren, the uh, Massachusetts senator, um, who you know obviously had the uh, the support of a lot of the left, a lot of a lot of liberals had wanted her to run for president in the first place, and uh, and you know Clinton was looking around for something different, something that might shake up the campaign a little bit, or at least to consider that. She met with Warren, she liked Warren, uh, but ultimately uh, the people we talked to said that she decided she didn't really have enough of a history with Warren to to you know be certain that Warren wouldn't uh, wouldn't go her own way uh, if they were both elected. That you know Warren would would essentially. She wasn't sure that Warren would be uh, the perfect governing partner. And right around that same time, the DNC emails were leaked out where Debbie Wasserman showed an anti-Sanders bias. Um, how did the Clinton campaign manage her exit? <laughs> um, let me just first say by way of disclosure, I, I worked for Debbie Wasserman Schultz once for about for a few weeks uh, as her political director. Um, you know, the way that they, they handled that exit was... Uh, the campaign wanted to get rid of her. I mean, they, they had wanted to get rid of her for a long time. And the, the uh, impediments were President Obama and Secretary Clinton, neither of whom wanted to, to pull that trigger. Clinton in particular, because she felt loyal to Wasserman Schultz, who had been supportive of her in the 2008 campaign. Uh, and ultimately, it became too much to bear that, uh, you know, the, the WikiLeaks uh, dumping of the DNC emails was was too much for, for anyone. And, and, you know, I think Clinton ultimately saw that Wasserman Schultz was, uh, you know, somebody that, that could be toxic to her campaign. So, uh, you know, they, they pushed her out the door. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Jonathan Allen when we come back in just a moment. One of the areas where Hillary seemed to excel was at the DNC and in the debates, did those sort of big tentpole media events have less impact on this election than they have in previous elections? That was the conclusion of the people around Clinton. Uh, I think most people who analyzed debates thought she had won, won all three of them in sort of traditional terms, but, uh, but also that they had a very short shelf life. Um, and, you know, Hillary Clinton's performance in, in big moments uh, in terms of the debates, uh, her convention speech, uh, her testimony before the Benghazi committee, uh, you know, she, she hit her marks on all those. Um, and, and in some cases, uh, really excelled, um, you know, she doesn't have the, the kind of big charisma of a Barack Obama or George W. Bush or Bill Clinton. Uh, but in terms of, you know, measuring her against herself, she really, uh, she really did well in those situations. Uh, as one of her, one of her aides put it to us, you know, every time she, she had a big moment, she, gave the campaign some relief uh, because she, you know, reminded people that she was uh, capable. And yet, um, you know, those things did not ensure the presidency for her, obviously. 
Yeah, and it, it sounds like it must have been hard when she's sandwiched between Bernie and Trump, who are hammering her from opposite sides, but essentially with the same anti-establishment message. That's right. They both had an anti-establishment message, and they both were essentially calling her corrupt. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and that you know, uh, Trump said lock her up, and uh, crooked Hillary and uh, Bernie Sanders said you know said she was hiding, uh, and and you know was kind of in the pocket of big banks and uh, energy companies. And these these messages really acted as uh, right and left uh, speakers on a, on a stereo, sort of blaring a populist anthem. And at one point, Hillary confesses to one of her personal friends and advisors, Minion Moore, quote, I don't understand what's happening with the country. I can't get my arms around it. Was that a bigger problem than the campaign realized? I think it was. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I think they were aware that this was a problem and they never found a, a real remedy, but they may not have, her campaign aides might not have quite gotten the degree to which she seemed lost uh, about this particular, you know, communicating with this particular segment of the electorate and, and understanding the anti-establishment nature of the electorate. If you think about Hillary Clinton, she's somebody who throughout her career has made the argument that you make change by uh, getting into the system, rising through the system, and then using your power to do do good things. And, uh, you know, what the, what the populist renaissance meant was uh, that the voters were saying they didn't want somebody who would get into the system and uh, change it from within. They wanted somebody who would break down the existing system and build something new in its place. The press ran away with her coughing fit and the incident where she got carried into the campaign van. Um, was her health a concern within the campaign? You know, it was for some people, but not in the way that, uh, you know, I, I, we never heard, Amy and I never heard as we were reporting this book, that there was anybody who thought she had like sort of permanent health issues. Uh, there was some concern about, about the coughing fits and whether she was getting enough rest or, you know, was getting treatment if she was sick. Um, and, you know, that video of her being uh, hauled into the van was uh, certainly not helpful for her. Political analysts thought that Trump was crazy to be wasting time in places like Michigan and Wisconsin. Hillary didn't mount much of a general election campaign in those states. Was it that her campaign was focused on turning out the base instead of persuading independents, or did they rely too much on analytics? Both of those things. Uh, by relying too much on analytics, you know, sort of a little bit of a chicken and the egg, uh, but basically in relying on the analytics, they were, um, they were looking for people that they could turn out who already agreed with her. Uh, as they tried to do that, they abandoned persuasion efforts because persuasion efforts are more expensive. The more they abandon persuasion efforts and focus on the base, uh, the more they alienate people who are outside of the base and strengthen uh, uh, the smaller and smaller base. So, you know, I mean, there's that was definitely what was going on. And in in addition to that, uh, some of the people we talked to said that they kept her out of some of those Midwest states because they believed that uh, essentially uh, a lower turnout would be good for her, that if it was voters who already knew about the election, uh, she would be in better shape than if they accidentally alerted people to the fact that there was an election going on. I don't know who's under a rock so much that they would be totally unaware of it, but there was uh, a sort of fear that uh, by advertising in Michigan and Wisconsin and certainly by sending the candidate there that they would call so much attention to the election that it would backfire and bring out people who didn't like her. Yeah, I, th- I think you say that one Michigan expert told her to stay out of the state. Yeah, I mean, that, that definitely was part of what the campaign's thinking was, that they that she was better off that way. And meanwhile, people in the state were saying, come on in. We're like, we, you need to be here. You're not here. You're missing out on what's going on. Your message isn't resonating. 
you need you need to fix that and get in here and, and make a play for some of these folks. Mm-hmm. And toward the end, you say that the campaign manager, Robbie Mook, was marginalized and eventually cut off from the candidate entirely. How does a campaign function when the guy at the top <laughs> well, is say, cut off from the I candidate? Would, I think the way that we put it is that he was uh, that he nearly nearly never talked to her, very seldom yeah. talked to her directly, you know, one on one after a certain point. What happened was uh, she replaced the structure that had Mook and uh, Podesta as the sort of leaders and uh, replaced it with a super six kind of board of directors that included them, but also four other people. Um, you know, when, when things weren't going well and weren't streamlined, uh, rather than putting, putting all the power in the hands of one person, she put it in the power of, in the hands of six. So 12 hands, I guess. When the Anthony Weiner scandal broke out later in the campaign and led the FBI to reopen the Clinton email investigation, how much of a rift did that create between Hillary and Huma Abedin? I mean, I think on a personal level, there's a lot of uh, sympathy and empathy uh, from Hillary Clinton toward Huma Abedin, but also a recognition that it got to a point where uh, where Huma was, was threatening the viability of the campaign and it was made clear to Huma that she needed to, to go home and deal with her her family issues uh, and not spend a whole lot of time getting photographed next to the candidate. Well, walk us through the election night. How did that play out from inside the campaign? Sure, I think this is one of the most interesting parts of the book and, and something that I that I have heard from readers. They, they really appreciate it because th- there hasn't been reporting on this uh, before. But uh, basically, uh, her campaign started seeing numbers come in from Florida uh, very early in the evening and uh, began worrying that not only were they going to lose Florida, but that some of the trends that they saw uh, among particular parts of the electorate would uh, would be extrapolated out to North Carolina and to Michigan and to Wisconsin and to Pennsylvania. Uh, and it was sort of like they recognized there was a problem early on and it never got better. It just got worse and worse. Uh, she was very stoic as she was being told about this. Uh, often answering in, in just one word or, or just saying okay, um, and then ultimately there was a flurry of phone calls between the White House and uh, and her campaign, including uh, one from Obama to Secretary Clinton, uh, basically urging her to concede. Once she conceded to Donald Trump, she got a consolation call from Barack Obama, uh, and and during that call, as all of this hits her, she's let herself down, she's let her party down, she thinks she's let the country down, and certainly let down Obama and his legacy. Uh, you know, she she kind of uh, winces when when Huma Abedin tells her that it's the president on the phone. But she eventually takes the phone and, and starts to walk away from her aides and says, Mr. President, I'm I'm sorry. Wow. You know, she was derided for wanting it so bad and for having prepared for this job her whole life and being so ambitious. But when you read the book, a friend of mine said she found it kind of depressing knowing how badly she wanted it to see her come so close and then have it snatched from the jaws of victory, so to speak. There's almost something sort of Shakespearean about it. I was going to say, I mean, in the, in the classical sense, there's a tragedy here, you know, a character with a character undone by, by her own flaws. Um, and there's, uh, you know, a lot of the people who have read the book have, have told me and Amy that, uh, that it's been an emotional journey for them uh, to go through it. Um, and, and some have come out on, on the other side saying, uh, that it was a little cathartic or, or gave them some closure. So, you know, people have slightly different reactions, but I think, um, you know, I think I hope that one of our achievements is that you see this uh, this character that has strengths and flaws and 
uh, high points and low points, um, and that there are lessons for candidates and parties and voters going forward about, uh, you know, not only how campaigns are run, but the way in which uh, candidates are selected. Yeah, and although you refer to it as a doomed campaign in the subtitle to the book, you say that this was a winnable election for Hillary Clinton. So in your opinion, this wasn't just a black swan election in which the populist forces driving Trump's victory were simply too great to overcome. Correct. Uh, I think that she did a lot of things that put her, put her in a position to lose. Um, and, uh, and, you know, with 78,000 or so votes over three states being the difference, you know, almost any variable could uh, be changed to, to change the outcome. But um, she, you know, the email scandal, the, the uh, speeches to banks, I mean, these are, uh, to borrow a, a sports metaphor, these are own goals, um, you know, <laughs> that she, she scored on herself. And, and the lack of a message after 10 years of running for president is, uh, is pretty jaw-dropping. Um, so, you know, I think there were things that she did that were much bigger than some of the, the smaller things that people look at, you know, says, for instance, Jim Comey's role in this election, uh, you know, he would not have been investigating her were it not for that, that email server's existence in the first place. When you and Amy began this book, did you think that you were setting out to tell a different story than what you ended up with on election night? It's interesting. We, we tried very hard and I think we succeeded in reporting and writing, uh, as though we didn't know the outcome. And so as the reader goes through, uh, hopefully they're experiencing this the way that, that you did in real time in a way, right? You see the high points, you see the low points. We pull back the curtain to show you what's going on behind the scenes as, uh, as these sort of familiar moments are playing out. But we tried very hard and, and, the, and we had been reporting and writing it before election day, um, you know, to not, to not write it with an anticipation of a particular outcome. We were both surprised on election day. We thought she was going to win. Uh, you know, we read polls too. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, after, after election day, uh, you know, we, we wrote the rest of the story and, you know, went back to some of the earlier parts to add flesh to some of the stories. But, uh, but we would really, you know, the reason we were able to get the books out so quickly after the election was that we didn't have to go back and tear up chapters because mm-hmm. we had not written it with an eye toward a particular outcome. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's an excellent look inside the war room. Again, the book is called Shattered, Inside Hillary Clinton's Doomed Campaign. Jonathan Allen, thanks for talking with me. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Jonathan Allen for joining me on the podcast. You can order Shattered, Inside Hillary Clinton's Doomed Campaign on Amazon or download the audio version for free at audibletrial.com slash kickassnews. And follow Jonathan on Twitter at at John Allen, DC. Be sure to subscribe to Kickass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. Don't forget to take our listener survey. It only takes five minutes at podsurvey.com slash kick. You can visit Kickass News on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And be sure to recommend Kickass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at GoFundMe.com slash KickAssNews or click on the donate button at KickAssNews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at KickAssNews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News.
Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.